Let us continue with how to meditate. We've been on this topic for at least 50 hours already, and we haven't really finished. Just to review the main PowerPoint slide, the six gates to summertime vipassana. So it's in two parts. Meditation is in two parts. The calming part, which is stabilization, and the contemplating part, which is the introspection. And the stabilization is the mental stabilization. In the Sanskrit language, is samatha. And uh, introspection in the Sanskrit language is vipassana. Why do we have to put the Sanskrit language? Because that is the original word spoken by the Buddha and later translated into English and Chinese and many other languages. And sometimes we need to know the origin of the words so that we know exactly what it means. Uh, stabilization is counting, following, and stabilization. Introspection is in three parts too. Uh, introspection itself, turning, and purification. Counting and following are the preparation for the actual cultivation, for the actual practice. You really have to be very familiar with counting, very familiar with following. These are the preparation. So if you don't even know counting and don't even know following, it's quite difficult to meditate. And uh, this method is not just a method suggested by uh, just meditation teachers or anyone who claim to be to be expert in meditation. This is a method suggested by the Buddha 2,600 years ago, not by an ordinary meditator. So we go by the origin of what the Buddha was talking about. So counting, following are the basics, and they are quite not easy already, but don't uh, think that this is something difficult to do, difficult to overcome. Anything can be achieved. As long as, as, as you put your mind to it, whatever the mind can conceive, the mind can do. So counting and following are the expedient means, the prerequisites, the preparation for it. Stabilization, um, introspection, and turning are the central practice, the cultivation. And then purification is the, the result. So stabilization, introspection, and turning are the cultivation. You're, in a, you're cultivating it. And purification is somehow the realization of it. So this is just a review. And the last time we talk about returning and we say just this is just a very fast review again since one introspects from the mind one should now return to the direction of the origin to introspect the very mind that is engaged in introspection when we introspect when we think when we um, contemplate we're contemplating from the mind using some certain concepts and interacting with externalities that's how we uh, introspect. And now, returning or turning is to say, where does this mind come from? 
getting back to the mind that is able to do this. Previously, we just say the mind is going to think about this, the mind is going to analyze this, the mind is going to investigate this, the mind is going to be to contemplate this, and so that we can build up wisdom, build up samatha, build up stabilization, etc., etc. We are using the mind, the thought, the mind, to interact with something external, even the concepts are external. The concepts, you learn certain concepts, you use those concepts to contemplate, to introspect. So you are using your mind, which is the subject and the objects, to concentrate or to stabilize or to think or to build up wisdom. And now we're doing something more profound. We're going to investigate the source. Where does this mind come from that investigate? Where does this mind come from to analyze? What does this mind come from that is involved with depression, with hatred, with anxiety? How about going back to the source now? Not just taking a look at the externalities. Not just say, this is, going to be, this is affecting me. You are affecting me. The noise affects me. Your look affects me. Your, what you said affects me. You, 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 you interact with the externalities. Now you say, what is this mind that that is doing all this. You know what I mean? You go back to the source. And we say, if you go back to the source, the mind that engages in introspection comes from where does it arise? There are two probabilities. Two probabilities. We're studying the probability theory. You know, at university, we study the theory of probabilities. That's under the scope of statistics. You know, probabilities. No, two probabilities. One probability is it's, this thought comes from the mind involved already in the introspection. It's a carry forward. You are introspecting it now, this, this introspection, this returning, uh, this, interest, this probability, where does the mind come from? It comes from a mind. It comes from a mind involved in introspection. Another probability is, is from a mind not involved in introspection. These are the two exhaustive probabilities, right? It's either yes or no, right? Either this or either that, right? And then we say, let's examine number one first, and then we examine number two, right? Is it from a mind involving suspicion? We say, I'm just doing a review. I already explained it for two hours already. We're just doing a review. From a mind involving suspicion, we say, if this is true, there must have been a pre-existing introspection process already underway that allow carries forward. In other words, there must be an earlier process giving rise to the current process, like existence of a father giving rise to existence of a son. The son comes from the father, right? If there's no father, there's no son. It must evolve from somewhere. But in the present situation, this is not the case as there was not yet anything immediately preceding counting, following, and stabilization that was identifiable, verifiable of this inspection process. So that means, is from a mind involved in introspection already? No, it isn't. According to probability, it is not from a mind. The conclusion is the introspection thought arose from a mind involved in introspection. It's not true. It's not true. That is not true. That statement is not true. That it is from a mind already involved in introspection is not true, right? But you really have to think about probability theory. You really have to think about logic. 
it, it would help you if you study symbolic logic. It, it's not easy to, to, to assimilate and digest this, but I already explained it. This is just a review, so I'm not going to go into detail. The second probability is it's generated from the case that introspection thought arose from a mind not involved in introspection. From a mind involved in introspection, we already have said, proven it logically, that it's not true. So it's not from a mind involved in introspection. Now how about from a mind not involved in introspection, the other probability. But this probability is broken down again into two probabilities. The first probability is, is, is it the case that the mind not involved in introspection generated it when that non-introspection thought had already ceased? or had not ceased. <laughs> this two Again, it comes two probabilities. Either had already that introspection thought had stopped, or that introspection thought had not, not yet stopped. All right, let's examine the first one. If one maintains that it was generated by a Dharma which had already ceased to exist, one should realize that once an ex extinct Dharma had already disappeared, it is no longer able to generate any introspection thought, as it violates the law of non-contradiction. This is not easy to understand when you have to think about it. Or, number two, if it had not yet ceased, then this would be a case of two thoughts existing simultaneously, which is unapprehensible. Un two thoughts mixed together, then which is two thoughts mixed together, then what is what? <laughs> if it is that thought that has the characteristic of cease and not cease, another possibility, cease and not cease, or neither cease nor not cease, it is all untrue as it violates the law of contradiction. How can it be, be right and not right? How can it be no feeling and have feelings? It's a contradiction. So according to that, the conclusion is the introspection thought arose from a mind not involved in introspection is not true. It's not true. None of them. None of them is true. So what's the conclusion? The conclusion is, I brought back the first two probabilities now. The conclusion is, is it arose from a mind? Did it arise from a mind? Involved in introspection, not true. Is it arose from a mind, arising from a mind, not involved in introspection, not true. So none of the above are true. So this mind that engages in introspection does not arise in any situation at all. The introspective mind was originally unproduced. So there's no thought. The thought is all conditions ripe than it produces. It has this, it doesn't have its own nature. The thought is just a conditional thought. It has no nature of its own. You just hang on to it. So that's the cultivation of returning. So the conclusion is the introspective mind was originally unproduced, unborn, uncaused. Because it was not unproduced, it does not exist. Because it does not exist, it is empty devoid of inherent existence. Because it is empty, there is no mind engaged in the process of introspection. The mind that is engaged in the process of introspection is no mind. It has no inherent existence. 
Do not hang on to duality-based extremes. If there is no mind, how could there be any external object which serves the object of introspection? If there is no mind, how could there be any external object? There's no external object because which serves as the object of introspection. Since there is no subject, there's no object. The vanishing of both the objective externalities and the and the mind is the meditative process of turning to the source. This is the cultivation of returning. Then you, you turn, out, turn back to the subject and you say, even the subject is conditionality. Even the subject does not have its own inherent existence or nature. That means if we use the body, our body and mind only live in the delusion of a dream. It is not real. But we think it's real all the time. So when you know that, not only the object is empty, even the subject is empty. We always hang on to the subject. I lost this, I gained this. But even the mind that is thinking about this loss, this gain, is empty. So why are we attaching to it? difficult to understand. The understanding of this is not just from the words. It's not just from, from, comes from the logic. Does it mean that the professor of logic is all enlightened? <laughs> not necessarily. The professor knows the logic, but he does not know the reality of it, the inherent under, understanding of it. He has got to cultivate it in order to realize it. If you only realize it through the words, you're not realizing it. You're understanding it through the words. You haven't really cultivated it. In other words, don't just talk about emptiness. Don't just talk about, I don't want to hang on to it. I don't want to get addicted to it. You have to practice it. it the, 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 the true understanding, the prajna of it, comes from not the words, not not the logic. It's from something that we can talk about. But we still have to talk about it though. So what do we do? So we say, we're trying. <laughs> if understanding the meaning of it through the words, and understanding the meaning of it through, through the understanding of high-sounding, high-profile logic, then logic is prajna. But logic is from, flows from prajna, but it itself is not prajna. The wave said, I'm not water, I'm just, a, I'm a wave. To understand that the wave is the water. The wave has to do something to understand it is, it is not wave. It is just being affected by the wind and then the motion that it becomes a wave, it is actually water. But the wave doesn't believe that it is water. I'm a wave. So the, the wave really have to have to get back to the realization that it is water. Then it does not matter how the winds blow, 
the wind wouldn't affect the wave anymore. The wave is not happy because it's always coming up and rising and moving and all that. The wave is not happy. I am a wave. How come I'm affected by the wind? How come I'm affected by all these externalities? But when the wave is not affected by this, completely calmed down, calmed, getting back to the, the purity of it, the wave is not affected by any wind anymore because it knows it is water. The realization of turning. Now, we, we talk about the cultivation of turning. Now, we're going to the realization of turning. The vanishing of both the objects and the mind. The objects are the external objects, and the mind is the knowing faculty that knows the object. In other words, the subject and the object, right? You are the, you are the knowing faculty, and the object is the object of knowing, you know. The vanishing of both the extreme of attaching to the object and the extreme of attaching to the mind, which is the ego, the you, the me, is the turning back to the source of the mind. Now the wisdom of the mind opens and develops. All sorts of introspection becomes spontaneous, unpremeditated, requiring no efforts. In other words, the, 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 the wave knows that it is water. It does not attach to the understanding that it is a wave anymore. It is not being affected by external winds or whatever or, 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 or the motor of a boat. It, it's being affected by nothing. Or the movement of a fish because it knows that it is actually in stillness. It is actually in the equanimity of the essence of water. No one should know the dualistic thinking of objects in the mind. Now, I mean, now, not no one. Now, one should know the dualistic thinking of objects in the mind, and even its absence is a nuisance in the meditation. This thinking about returning to the source, this thinking about I'm a water, I'm a wave, even that you have to get rid of. Now one should relinquish turning to the source and establish the mind in the path of purification. Now you even relinquish, forsake the subject, forsake the object. Both are extremes. One is the knowing faculty, i.e. that is to say you or ego, and the other externalities, all kinds of externalities. Even these two extremes, they become a thinking nuisance, a meditative nuisance. It's not purity. Because whenever you're thinking about a subject is not pure, you're thinking about an object is not pure. Sure, objects are not are even more polluted than a subject. And even thinking about these dualistic base extremes is a nuisance to purification. Even thinking about water is too much. Even the wave thinking about, I'm not a wave, I'm, a, I'm water. Even that thinking is a thinking, is too much. You want to go to purification. That is going to the path of purification. Okay, then we're going to the next one now. We already finished turning. Remember we said meditation have six aspects to it. Stabilization is following, counting, and, and, 
and stabilization, and introspection is introspection, turning, and purification. Now we have dealt with five. We're going into purification, which is the effect of all the other forerunners, all the other things that we have done. Purification of the five scanters, as an example. We, purif we continue with the meditation, continue with thinking like this, but we like, first of all, we like to reframe from generating the force thoughts of each scanter. The force thought of materiality, the force thought of perception and feeling, the force thought of conceptualization, the force thought of relational action and speech, the fourth thought of consciousness. We want to refrain from doing that and ending defilements of discriminative thinking. Yes or no, clear, polluted and unpolluted, pure and impure, leading to the end of self-grasping. You try to end ego, to end the I, and with, equipped with, with all these other you have learned about following, counting, stabilization, introspection. Now you reflect a little bit more, not just externalities, on yourself, on the body now, on who am I, you know, what am I doing in here? How do I interact with the external world? And then we know that, what are the five scanters? You, me, everybody is a composite, is a, a, a conglomeration of the five scanters. Just to refresh our memory, what are the five scanters? We broke it down into five, but let's, let's do a little bit more into the five scanters. We are body and mind act together, right? Body and mind, right? Body and mind. We have a body, we have a mind, right? The body, the five scanters means the body is materiality. What is the body make up of? Molecules, right? Material. Material. The body is not some, something that you cannot touch. The body is made up of matter, of form, molecules, elements. And then we have the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, which is a conglomerate of, um, of the lungs, the spleens, the heart, the skin, the bone, even the feces, the urine, the phlegm, the hair, the head. So body, materiality. Now, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body. But other than the body, we also have the mind, right? How can, a body, how can there be a body without mind? The mind has what? The mind has perception and feeling, conceptualization and analysis, and memory, and then carry into actions through this conception, cognition, and then going through some process of storage, is stored in the memory. We have a memory, we have, you know, all this mentality of it, which is, which is not as concrete as the body, right? You cannot touch your thought, right? The mind, the thought. Can you touch your, can you hear your thought? Yes, when you were thinking, actually you thought you were hearing, but you're not listening. You're just hearing within, right? Not with the eardrums. So the five scanters, then you, you have to penetrate through it and see its emptiness and see that there is no subject, no object. To see that it, it has no inherent existence. It just exists on conditionality. 
it exists in a very impermanent basis. It is subject to changeability. But we have a problem. We're attached to it. We're attached to love. We're attached to reputation. We're attached to money. We're attached to food. We're attached to relationship. Man and woman relationship. We're attached to everything because not only the body attaches, the mind attaches. No exceptions. But the Buddha said they have no inherent existence. When you analyze, when you come to analyze it in the meditation process, you purify, purify, and purify. And when you purify it, you find that all these are not true. They exist, they're unreal. All these unreal, unreal does not mean that they don't exist. They exist only impermanently. They exist subject to changes. Every second is changing. Our body is changing every second. Major change in seven days, they say. Nothing is not changing. But we keep on attaching to it. I'm talking about the five scandals now. I'm just reviewing the five scandals too, that we can go back to purification to see how we can purify the five scandals and come up with something that don't attach to ego, don't attach to this I. No self-grasping. So materiality, we say we have the eyes, eyes contact objects, the environment, ears, interact sound, nose with smell, tongue with taste, body with touch. What does this mean? Body with touch. Body, of course, touches. But this touch is not just touch. This touch is contact, organizational contact. When we say organizational contact, the organ contact, the blood circulation, the metabolism of the body, Everything about a body, it interacts with each other. Outside interaction, if touches, inside is all this flow, all this chi, all this, you name them, what is all this? Chi and blood and circulation, air, all these things, that's the body. So materiality sort of summarizes everything into eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body. That's what the, the Buddha identified it, so that we can easily understand our body. But why did he, or why did he and his disciples and all those philosophers depict conspicuously, to bring out eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and then put everything, your organs, your heart, your spleen, your lung, under body? Because the eye, ears, nose, tongue are the external salesmen and sales leaders that absorb all these things and complicate the whole issues. Your eyes attached to beauty, to sex. Your ears attached to, you know, get annoyed with criticisms and your ears and tongue. Your tongue wants to taste the flesh and blood of animals. That's why you kill animals for food. You like to... All these senses get us into trouble. And it affects the body because it stimulates the hormone. All our senses, you know, your, every, all the eyes, ears, nose, and tongue, every one of these affect every element of the body, affect every cell of the body, every molecule of the body, your eyes. You think your, your eyes can do anything your eyes want? Everything your eyes does affect your, your, your body inside. 
which also affects the mind. So if your eyes see things that you shouldn't see and attach to it, affects the body right away. Not only does it affect your body, it affects the brain right away. You may not notice it. You yell out, you shout, you shout, you yell, you curse, you do all kinds of things. You think you just yell it out and that's it? Nobody can hear you? You, you, you blame someone, you curse someone and that's okay? No. Affects everything. Every molecule of the body. Every, every hormone inside the body. Every cell. Every seat in your consciousness. So that's the reason why the Buddha said we need Vinaya, we need Sila, we need, we need precepts, we need discipline so that we can gear ourselves onto the right path. Your eyes must see that your eyes should see and must not see that your eyes shouldn't see. Your nose should smell, your tongue should do in the right way. That's the reason why monks have 250 precepts, nuns 348, laymen, eight precepts, five precepts. And all these summarize into crude precepts. Abstain from killing, abstain from lying, abstain from sexual misconduct, abstain from intoxications. All these are just trying to tell your ears, your eyes, your nose, your tongue to be extremely careful. But who are careful with the eyes, with the nose, with the ears, with the tongue? We're not careful. We just use them whatever we want, creating a lot of karma. As a, as a result of creating karma, we suffer because any karma you create, it bounces back to you. That's the Newton law of energy. Whatever you give out bounces back to you in, in the same opposite direction, multifold, you know. Whatever you give out bounces back to you. Whatever bad things you give out bounces back to you too which is basically all the sensory organs, all, the, all the, the feelings, good feelings, pleasurable feelings, unpleasurable feelings, all these feelings. Everything you see, everything you hear, you attach feeling to it. I hate this. I love this. I'm neutral with this. Your conceptualization, you conceptualize with your own personal view. How can this guy waste any food? This is against the law of nature. How can this be done like that? This is how I see it. You always judge things with your own opinion. We have been carrying, we have been, everybody wear a pair, a pair of glasses with their own opinion tainted on it. Everybody has an internal commentator inside of them. You give comments according to your own background, your own education, the way you're brought up, all your common energies that you brought forward from previous lives. And yet we say that I am objective. I am neutral. I don't attach any opinion to anything. Can you? Almost like impossible. You don't even know about it. You attach to it, even you don't know about it. I attach to it, I don't even know about it. All those people who know that I attach 
I should turn back. I should return. I should think about it. I should think about my existence. I should think about what is this. I should think about, am I ignorant about this? That's the reason why Socrates have been searching all over the market. I'm looking for someone who is ignorant, who knows that he's ignorant. Everybody don't think that they're ignorant. Who thinks that, who thinks that I'm ignorant? I got, I got, I'm ignorant. Nobody thinks that he's ignorant. The only thing is smart. I'm smart. I know all these. So, these are the five scantres that we have to work through. And the mind is broken down into mano, which is all this rational thinking, the thinking that is more or less rational. And manas, the ego, the emotional mind. The rational mind, more or less rational mind, that you pick up the, the morality you pick up from society, the norm of the society, the norm of the family, the norm of mankind, all this is what you build up in mano. And the manas is the emotional mind, your rational mind and your emotional mind are always at tug at war, a tug of war with each other, always pulling and pulling. You, you see who is winning at a tug of war all the time. Emotional mind and rational mind. And it seems that the emotional mind is always winning. You're always emotional. It's always winning. And the alliance is all storing all these things. You can't get away with all these things. Life after life after life after life. And that we are make up of these five scanters. We make up of the body and mind, materiality, perception and feeling, conceptualization, investigation and analysis, and memory. Volitional action is the carrying out into speech and action, creating new karma, and consciousness is the storage of all these. And this is usually how we think. Perception, collision, ego, store consciousness. The center, perception, cognitions, ego, and store consciousness are the five scanters, the body and mind. And on the other side of this consciousness is how, we, how the mental experiences work in our daily lives. And the external environment, now the objects, the sound, the smell, the taste and touch, they are affecting all the time. All this interrelationship, all this intertwining of all these com complications all make up all these karmic energies that we're creating. Let's get back to the cultivation of it, the cultivation. How do we cultivate? How do we get to understand not just the words of materiality, perception and feeling, conceptualizations, volitional action and speech and consciousness? We say we refrain from generating false thoughts, wandering thoughts of the body, of the perception and feeling, conceptualization, and ending defilements of discriminative thinking, leading to the end of self-grasping. Now, this is just a summary. How do you do it? How do you do it is all in the practice. Getting back to the practice, practice again. How do we practice it? How to go sunyata, no self. How to build up all these practices with all this, the Buddhist conceptual thinking. A summary of what we should do. We should think about our existence. How do we purify it? How do we purify our existence? The difference between an animal and a human is the animal just, when, he, when the dog is hungry, he wants to eat. When the dog is unhappy, he may bark. He will not say, the dog probably will not say, where do I come from? Why am I in reincarnation? 
Why do I feel unhappy sometimes? Why does my masters, my of the house, always like this? How come they're quarreling all the time? How come they have emotional problems? How do we all together resolve this emotional problem? You know the thought the dog would, would think like that? I don't think an animal would think like that. They feel, they feel hungry, they just want to eat. They feel being intimidated, they just want to defend themselves by, by, I don't know, by hurting the opponent. But the human is something different. The human think about the value of existence. Previous life, future life, and the present life. But even humans, is every human doing that? Or you just involved with every day, you're thinking about how to make more money, how to, uh, how to if you get divorced, how to get a, girl, a new girlfriend or boyfriend, and how do uh, I have kids? How do I get the kids to the good, the best school? How to make more money? Uh, I have, oh, I, I, um, I, I'm wealthy enough. I, I, I'm a millionaire now. And uh, what do I do? I, I, I go, uh, before I go economy when I'm traveling, and then I become a millionaire, I'm, I, I go business class. And then uh, sometimes I go, I, I go first class. But then when I talk to my friends, some of my friends, well, I, I, I'm not happy with what I am now, even I'm going uh, first class uh, in my traveling, because some of my friends have a private jet. You know, I want a private jet. I don't have to go through all these customs, they can do everything for me. I have my private pilot and a stewardess. I have a house, I have an apartment before, and then I have a house, I have a house in Sonnesty. And then uh, I, my house is only 3,000 square feet. And look at this castle. I have one of a three acres on Sonnesty. <laughs> you, you have insatiable desire. You see, his wife is beautiful, and my wife, you know, I don't know why, you know. No, she's no good. <laughs> you always, you always, strive for more, you always want, and some of them do it by illegal means too. Creating a lot of bad karma. Who would suffer? You yourself would suffer. So cultivate purification. Throw away this self-grasping. How do we do it? You have to go through a lot of all these Buddhist concepts and learn of meditation and all that. All these previous things that you have learned, you brought them into a, the right telescope, the right magnifier, the right way of looking at it, and then you practice accordingly. You don't just, not just talk about it. You have to walk the board, not just talking about the board, walk board. You have to practice it. You can be the best eloquent speaker of Buddhism, but you're selfish. You're egoistic. So how does Buddhism help you? Is Buddhism just a lecture, just books? Somebody wrote six, seven books of Buddhism, and he's always talking about how much you got from copyright. You know, how much do I get from all these? And he's talking about an organization. How can my organization get more devotees so I can get more donation? 
you practice, you don't practice, you just know the, know the literature of it. It's not enough. The Buddha said it's not enough. So we have to cultivate purification. And cultivation is not just talking about it. You really have to do it, right? Okay, let's go on to the next, the realization of purification. One achieves a state where the mind is in full accord with wisdom, leading to a direct experiencing of samadhi. Slowly you will gear yourself in such a way that your mind is equilibrium of tranquility, your wisdom and your mind, in other words, your mind is not at, at a tug of war with each other. You come to a one unity where there's pure tranquility, pure purification, uh, coming to a samadhi. Now even the samadhi, it, the purification is in two parts. One is the semblance realization of purification and the real realization of purification. Semblance is you're not there yet. You're not a real enlightenment yet. You're close. And real realization is something that you can't really talk about. It's beyond words, beyond communication. You only, you only know about it, but the talking of it is meaningless because you can't, you can't express it. I'm just back from Bowen Island, and it does not matter how I describe it to you, you have not been there. You don't know what Bowen Island is all about. You have to be there. Can you tell me what's the scenery like in Bowen Island? I say, well, I can talk about it. And then you say, I understand it. Oh, is it that way? This is the way I understand it. This is semblance realization. You truly understand it, this semblance. This, it is more or less like that, but you're not there yet. It's not real realization. So it is real realization of purification. It's the genuine part of it. And the semblance is just more or less close, similar realization of it. The defilements of the free realms come to a halt, to a stop, stand still. The practitioner will be out of samsara of the free realms. When you have complete purification, you are at a point where all this ego, all these things dropped. And when this body is gone, when you shed this body off, you don't go through reincarnation anymore. This is a burden that we have to shed off. You love this body so much, but this body that you have to get rid of, you must, we must know how to get rid of this body. Who wants to get rid of the body? Only dying, right? Everybody's afraid of dying, of death. But you've got to die out this body to go to, to go to that place where you call enlightenment. There's no one in, in samsara that does not die. If God tells you that you don't have to die, in here, in this world. How can that be? Because there's always changeability. If God, if there's a God, of course, you have to talk about that, say that that is the heaven you can go. It may be, it may be true. That heaven is it's only, according to the Buddha, that heaven is only a place where you are temporarily immigrate in there, and there you still have to learn how to shut the body off and go to that 
state where the mind is in full accord with wisdom, what we call nirvana. And, and Amitabha Buddha also built that heaven too. But that heaven is only an intermediate state because one cannot really attain a complete real realization of purification um, of one's lifetime. It's completely difficult. So we really have to go to a place where you learned to have the real realization of purification. So that's the, real, that's the realization of purification. And just to wrap up today's a summary of what is today talk, contemplating is the same as introspection, but I'm using contemplating. Contemplating the emptiness of all beings is defined as introspection. All beings means not only sentient, but all sentient and non-sentient. Sentient beings have feelings like you and me. Non-sentient like the floor, matter. So all beings, introspecting all beings as empty, sunyata, contemplating externality. Contemplating the emptiness of Dharma is defined as turning, that is contemplating in the internalities. If you, if, if you search in the dictionary, internality is, has economic meaning, but this is in, internal, that means everything inside, the subject. The subject is your knowing faculty. The knowing faculty itself is also emptiness. So both the subject and the object are empty. Contemplating the emptiness of duality is defined as purification. That means no subject, no object. No introspection and turning it's just a method going to purification. The duality part of it, the subject and the object, extremes. Internal, external, extreme. Introspection, internal, extreme. Even the extreme, even the Dharma has to go. Even Buddhism has to go. When you know Buddhism, truly know Buddhism, throw away Buddhism. It's a nuisance. That's just a raft to the shore. That's just a boat to the shore. Get rid of that boat. Don't attach to the boat, but you need the boat. You need the boat, but you want to go ashore? Get rid of the boat. Don't hang on to the boat. Oh, this is my boat. I, I, I spent $50,000 on this <laughs> boat. I don't want to, get, I want to get rid of it. Get rid of the boat in order to get ashore. Contemplating emptiness of duality is divine as purification. Absence of both externality and internality. That's the realization of purification. I can even say, I finished how to meditate. And I can, we can also go on for another year. Whether we should go on for another year or not. Which we, because turning and purification is not really talk about stuff. All this previous stuff counting, following, stabilization, introspection. We can talk about them. Um, but turning, we still can talk about them a little bit. Purification, we can't even talk about them. Those are the effects of doing right in all those previous five. So we may as well say, okay, this is it. Or we can carry on and on and on. There's no one rule for, for Buddhism. And finally, even all these is 
strictly speaking, even these at the final outer destination, even these are roadblocks to you. These are the hurdles that strengthen your energy to jump. The hurdles, when you can jump that, even the hurdles have to go in order to get there.